Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. I am so thrilled because tonight we have a guest that I've been trying to get on our show for two years. He is my privacy hero. He is a guru of privacy. He is the father of information privacy. He walks on water and he is with us all the way from the East Coast. I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Alan F. Weston. He's professor of public law and government emeritus at Columbia University. He was also former publisher of Privacy in American Business and former president of the Center for Social and Legal Research. He is the author or editor of 26 books on constitutional law, civil liberties and civil rights, privacy, and American politics. In 2005, Dr. Weston received the Privacy Leadership Award of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, of which I am a proud member, and I remember that. That was wonderful. And Professor Weston's major books on privacy include Privacy and Freedom, which I have right in front of me, a big, thick, black and red book that really is wonderful. You read it over and over again. It's the Bible of Information Privacy. And his next book was Data Banks in a Free Society. And they were both pioneering works that prompted U.S. privacy legislation and helped launch global privacy movements in so many different democratic nations in the 1960s and 70s. He also specialized in studying the impact of information technologies on national and local governmental operations, This includes from decision-making to citizen services and Freedom of Information Administration. And this was illustrated by his 1971 book called Information Technology in a Democracy. For over 40 years, Dr. Weston has been a member of the U.S. federal and state government privacy commissions and an expert witness before legislative committees and regulatory agencies. These activities cover privacy issues in financial services, 
credit and consumer reporting, direct marketing, healthcare, telecommunications, employment, law enforcement, online and interactive services, survey research, and social services. He has consulted on privacy with major companies, including IBM, Security Pacific, Equifax, American Express, Citicorp, Bell Atlantic, on and on and on and on. He has also spoken about privacy at more than 800 national and international business and industry and scholarly meetings. He's done so much. I I can tell you so much more, but you can find out more about him at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy because this could go on for years and Lloyd is telling me, hey, get started. I want to hear him. So here we go. Thank you so much for joining us, Alan. My pleasure. You have really been the guru and you started writing way back in the early 1950s and you're only 21. I don't know how you did that one. But how did you get interested in this topic in the first place? I was a senior at Harvard Law School in 1951, and I was taking a constitutional law seminar with a professor named Arthur Sutherland. And we had to choose a topic to write an in-depth term paper. And in some way, I selected wiretapping because it was very intriguing that you had this technology of listening in on people and it was being used widely, not just by government agencies, but by private eyes and so forth. And the law was in a great mix-up at the time. So I wrote this paper, and I revised it, and it was published in the Columbia Law Review in 1952 in an article that was called The Wiretapping Problem, An Analysis, and a Legislative Proposal. And what I tried to do after analyzing what was going on was to draft a statute, which I recommended as the way to uh, get us out of the, the impasse that we had. And lo and behold, two states adopted my statute, uh, Maryland and Oregon. And I thought, gee, this is a great topic. You can uh, be uh, Solon and Justinian and make law and get it picked up. Wow. And you were so young then, too. I was. And then I got a call from a federal judge in Oregon who a couple of years later, was handling a wiretapping prosecution. And he said, I'm calling you because the Oregon legislature said it modeled its statute on the article you wrote in the proposal in the Columbia Law Review. And what did you mean when you said such and such? I said, gee, this is doubly great. Not only will (laughs) state legislators adopt my law, but judges will ask me what I think. So I was hooked on privacy pretty early. (laughs) Did it go to your head at that time? Um, It was satisfying, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So wiretap, boy, you could write about wiretapping now in a different way, couldn't you? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) It never disappoints. Wiretapping goes on forever. Right. (laughs) So how did you jump from wiretapping to Privacy and Freedom, which you published in 1967? Um, The way I got to that was there was a Committee on Science and Law of the Association of the Bar of the City of New York, a very outstanding group of lawyers who work on policy issues, and the head of it, a man named Oscar Riebhausen, came to me and said, I've been reading the things you've written about wiretapping and law reviews and the New Republic and so forth, and I think that a lot of new technology is developing which is going to have a major impact on what we call privacy. And would you be willing to direct a major project to look at what's going on and to try and put it in some perspective? And I was just thrilled at that way of thinking about it. So the book I wrote, Privacy and Freedom, which was published in 1967, took four years for our committee to work and for me to write, looks first at uh, 
physical surveillance technology developments, psychological uh, developments affecting privacy, and data collection and data manipulation. And then what I tried to do, having looked at these new technologies, was to say, what do we really mean by privacy? And so the beginning of the book really deals with the functions of privacy in society, whether it's uh, anthropological studies, psychological, sociological, economics, tried to pull together all of the material and organized it in terms of what I saw as the functions that privacy perform in societies. And then, uh, having looked at the new technologies, I described from a lot of very detailed sources just how these were being used by business, by government, uh, by criminal groups, etc., and ended the book with some suggestions for what kind of privacy values and privacy laws and privacy uh, support was needed. So for me, it was a tremendous learning experience, and I tried to get it all down in the book. Oh, it, it's still really a fascinating book and is still relevant today. But as part of that study, you wrote a book-length manuscript on privacy in Western history. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, as part of writing Privacy and Freedom, I said, you know, I wonder how much if we go back to the Greeks and the Romans and the English and the American Republic, we could trace the rise and thinking about privacy across 2,000 years of Western history. And the way I did it was with the aid of some very, very talented history graduate students at Columbia. I wrote a case study for each of these periods, Greece comparing Periclean Athens to Sparta, Rome comparing the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, uh, looking at the way institutions in the Middle Ages defined private persons and how they function, then England in the 1600s, and finally the American Republic in 1789 to about 1820. And my theme was that every society in Western history that had a reputation for liberty in its time had, if we look and examine the record, laws and governmental institutions and romantic literature and poetry and so forth, every society with a tradition of liberty had very strong privacy protections. And in the opposite, in each period, you can find a society that was a dictatorship, authoritarian, and it viewed privacy as an enemy. And that's the story that I wrote in the book. It was my Ph.D. at Harvard, where I got my Ph.D. as well as my law degree. And I've been working on that book ever since. And one of these days, I plan to finish it and publish it. <laughs> well, you know, when I went to the Poneman Institute and you gave your wonderful lecture to us, you were talking about more recent history and kind of showed us the evolution of privacy in more recent history. So you, you've been working on that, I can tell. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, we have histories of everything. We have histories of the... the uh, monuments, we have histories of women, we have histories of war, we have histories of love. Ironically, there is no history of privacy, and that's where I feel I've got to do my duty and get one out there. Yeah, yeah. So when's that going to happen so we can already set up another appointment for a conversation on, on our radio show? Well, I've got about nine months to a year to 
pull it all together and do the beginning and ending. One of the things I decided after I wrote the manuscript, and it had been aging like a fine cask of Amontillado for years, <laughs> uh, was that I had missed the beginning. And so in the last four years, what I've done has been to write a history of the Hebrews in privacy yeah. and went back to biblical times and recognized that some of the ideas that are associated with the Greeks or American Republic actually have their origins in the way in which the Hebrews in the classical period of the Bible uh, define privacy. And so that's been keeping me busy lately, but it makes the book then six case studies, yeah. the Greeks, the Romans, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's all sorts of privacy. We talk about information privacy. We talk about, you know, surveillance privacy. What, what are the different uh, can you give us some of those definitions? Like, sure. What was the definition in the the Old Hebrews, the, the Bible? Well, it's very interesting that the very early days in the Bible, the Hebrews were praised because they arranged their tents so you couldn't look into somebody else's tent as your tent was put across them. Hmm. And one of the things that developed then in, in Hebrew law was that you could not overlook people in what were considered to be private activities. Uh, that's a remarkably modern concept, and yet uh, it goes back to the days of the Bible and the days of a nomadic tribe in the way in which they set up their tents and so forth. Uh, Is that where we got the, have the, expect, you know, that you have a real expectation of privacy in your home? <laughs> Is that what that yes. called? Really? Yes. I mean, long before there yeah. was a castle, there was the tent of the Hebrews. So right, it's right. interesting to see that even before some of the great English common law definitions of a man's right to his castle privacy, right. we had this earlier tradition of giving physical privacy against being overlooked or overseen. Ah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So talk about some more of the definitions of privacy. Well, in my book, Privacy and Freedom, I try to suggest that there are four states of privacy that people want to choose and, and manage. There's solitude, where we're alone, and it's the greatest state of privacy because we're outside the sight or the hearing of anybody else. And we use solitude in order to have downtime and rethink ourselves and recover ourselves and reshape ourselves. Right. The second state of privacy is intimacy, where we share very personal things about ourselves to somebody that we trust and that we're willing to reveal ourselves to. And we do that because sharing these highly personal aspects of ourselves is vital to a balanced self. You, you need help, you need counsel, you need to try things, and so intimacy is very important. Right, and connection. Yeah, and we have the third uh, anonymity, which is where people can go out and be in public, but they're not recognized and they're not seen. And many people, when they go to a bar or a train, will talk about very personal things because that individual they speak to will not continue in their life or exert any authority over them. So we we have a, an important anonymity right, and it's one of the things that's under a lot of pressure today. Right. And uh, finally, we have a uh, aspect of privacy called reserve, which is where, by social convention, we don't ask people questions about themselves, so we don't try to uh, intrude upon them because we negotiate, in effect, 
an understanding that certain topics are not ones that we should bring up. And what I try to show in the book is that each individual wants to or needs to create their own balance of privacy. And that goes back to my definition of privacy, which is the claim of individuals to decide what information about themselves is revealed to others, how much and at what time and under what safeguards and so forth. And when that claim gets incorporated into law, we can then say you have a right of privacy, a legal right. But what's so important about privacy is that it's never absolute. It's always being balanced against two other important social interests, disclosure, so that a society knows what it needs to in each situation about who's saying things and what their motives are and what their record is and so forth. And in a free society, our First Amendment is the freedom of speech and press, and those are the competing rights against the right to privacy. The other competing interest is protective surveillance. Every society has to fight crime and has to protect itself in a national security context. And so what I tried again in the book to do was to show that in a society like ours, what we want is a kind of civil libertarian-oriented balance among the privacy, disclosure, and surveillance interests. Uh, The thing that makes it so complicated is that in addition to what I just said, uh, there's enormous curiosity uh, in social life, that we always want to know what the rich and the famous are doing and what the celebrities are doing. And so privacy always competes with a drive for knowledge, which can become very, very prurient and uh, voyeuristic at times. So privacy is a very complex phenomenon, and it requires the kind of thinking that you've just heard me quickly suggest. Yeah. And also we've got this whole issue, which you talk about the claim to decide of the individual, to decide whether or not or when to divulge information and and to have some control over it. And with the Internet and with all the huge databases, we have very little control over how our information is shared and sold and collected and distributed. We've engaged in in what many people would call a Faustian bargain. In return for the computer data bank and the communication powers, uh, we have shrunk what could be taken for granted as private. And so what we have to do is reconstruct by law and by practice and the marketplace and other forces some balance because uh, even when you're rich and famous and you can buy your way out of some disclosure of personal information that the poor or the people in government programs have to give, you then are the object of the curiosity and the paparazzi. So it's a very, very troublesome time we live in because of just what you said, the rise of data banks collecting vast amounts of information and Internet that can put this at the immediate command of anybody for $25 or even free. You can Google somebody and get an astonishing amount of information about them uh, that's on the Internet today. Oh, it's amazing. You know, I got a call today from a woman who was very upset because she's a model and she has a MySpace up and she has another website up. And she found out that her likeness, her photo, not her name, Her photo is on another MySpace uh, website, 
and it's on several German websites. And the person has put up a name that's not her name, pretending to be her, and soliciting money and gifts for, you know, in exchange for, I don't know, what kind of pleasures. <laughs> and um, and she also found that someone is doing a fundraiser using her picture, saying she was in an accident and collecting money with her picture. Now, you know, and, and not, nowhere using her name. Yeah. It's a strange world we <laughs> live in. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you can appropriate somebody's likeness, and yes. you can post it on YouTube, and six million people can see it. Yeah. But what's also true is that you can take somebody's face, put it on somebody else's body, right. and Photoshop it so that what once used to be reliable photographic evidence of things no longer is true. You You really cannot take for granted the authenticity of any photograph today. I know. You know what I did? For my sister's 50th, I took a, her head and put it on a dinosaur. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And made a, you know, and made a, a, a card for her. So you're absolutely right. You, you don't know what's real anymore. You know, yeah, once upon a time <laughs> in the print age and in the photographic pre-computer age, right. the law could say that you had a property right in your likeness. <clears throat> and especially if you were somebody with a public reputation, uh, somebody who was in public office or a celebrity in show business, you could go to court and sue if somebody put your likeness to promote a product or to advertise. Right. That's gone in the sense that you can't do it so directly, but you can now do so many things that appropriate other people's likenesses and use them for all kinds of illicit as well as uh, commercial kinds of activity. And the law struggles to keep up with it. Oh, I know. You know, because I was thinking to myself when I talked to her, I said, you know, I set up a Google alert, so whenever my name appears anywhere on the Internet, Google alerts me, and then I look and make sure that it's something that's that it's okay with me, you know? But how do you do it with a photo that doesn't have your name? Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, just what you're doing is something that very few people still do. If you look at all the people that are using the Internet, and I think the latest figure is something like 75 to 80 percent of adults uh, are on the Internet, and if you added the people from, you know, 10 to... 17, you get a, another 30 or 40 million. So we, we have a whole population, but very few people, even those that are in public life and aware of things, are doing what you're doing, which is to create a system where you can keep up with what may be circulating about you in, in, through Google. Yes, yes. And so I'm telling everybody, by virtue of this radio show, you know, all sorts of tricks that they can do to protect themselves online. But I, I really don't know the answer to the photo. In fact, I wrote Dan Solove. You know, Dan. Of course. Dan was on our show a couple times, and we talked about the future of reputation on the Internet. So I just right. wrote him an email. I said, Dan, I said, do you know of any way to have photo matches so that if your fo see if your photo is used in a way that you might not be happy about? You know, I mean, I, I've put my name in and I've yeah. seen, you know, if you if you go to Google and you go to Google Photos and you put your name in, you could see all the photos about yourself. That have your name on them. Yes, yeah. but not well, for the ones that don't have. How do you do it? Well, I suppose that there is a technology, facial recognition, yes. which if people was were sufficiently concerned and if somebody saw money to be made in it, there could be another service that said you could put your facial recognition uh, data into a search 
vehicle, and they could do the same thing for the photo with that technology that you're doing with text or, or data Yes, search. yes, and I think they could should they? do that because now after I heard this story, I had another person call me. I had a, a gentleman call me right here from Orange County, California, very upset. They had put up pictures of their new baby, and somehow their pictures of their new baby were on somebody else's website, and they were touting it as their child. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I mean, we, we got it down, but, I mean, why would people do something like this? You know, it just it amazed. So what kind of privacy do you have getting back to that whole <laughs> issue of having control over yeah. your well, you know, information? Uh, there's a debate that's been raging for the last 40, 50 years among people who work on privacy, which is, should you consider privacy a property right, or should you consider it a personal right? This has big implications in terms of the legal system, because if it's a property right, you should be able to exercise the control over people who have taken and used your property without your permission. So in that route, you're going in the stream of law cases that treat your reputation as, as a property. Right. On the other hand, if you take the personal right approach, you can say that it's a violation of your identity, a violation of your uh, control over your own information dissemination. And the personal right tends to be, I would argue, a better right than to try and anchor it in the property right, because the property right has a lot of limitations. You have to show that somebody is profiting from it. And some of what you were just relating, you had cases where people were not actually making a commercial use, but they were making a use that was offensive. Right. And that's where I think the personal right characterization is the better one. Yeah, and and also that, that form of identity theft, which it really is, whether it's cyber identity theft mm-hmm. or any kind of identity theft, um, is is a personal right. And, yeah. and it is definitely a way that it could ruin your reputation, especially this model, because she told me about one of the pictures was, highly offensive that would hurt her as a professional model mm-hmm. so yeah it's uh scary kinds of things going on that that i hear about every day right that but you is... know the other part of it that i'm sure you'd want to talk about is the new generation that's coming up which is so attuned from ages two and three to the technology yes now has through myspace and youtube and Facebook and all of their allied technologies, the ability to launch something about themselves to the world and to have, if it clicks, three million, five million people look at something on YouTube or go to MySpace. Right. Now, what's happening is that because the first big users of these new social networking technologies have been the young folks, teenagers or even preteens, and they haven't yet learned how important it is to moderate what they broadcast about themselves. And because exhibitionism is a, a function of juveniles, you have people who are putting into these social networks pictures of themselves drunk, taking their clothes off, beating up other people. I mean, astonishing what right. is being portrayed. And what people don't always realize, and some of us try to bring to their attention, is that when you post this, future employers can look at it, law enforcement can get to it, insurance companies that are looking at lifestyle can look at it, and while young people are not always the best guardians of their future, 
there are a lot of teenagers out there that are just marking their futures in a dark way by what they're promoting. So there's a downside to the power of communication that we've developed through the new Net 2.0 world. Exactly. It's like that woman, remember, that I think she was a Delta Airlines uh, host, uh, flight attendant yeah who yeah we sing stewardess we could we're showing our age right (laughs) flight attendant um yeah who was fired by delta for the picture that she put up you know she took a picture of herself and now she wrote a book about it but i've i've literally heard of victims who've called me who've said that they were fired or they weren't hired or they were going to be hired and they were told wait a minute we can't hire you because look what you're doing how how you might embarrass our firm or you might embarrass our business so You know, maybe they'll catch up with it and learn about this, or maybe as that generation grows up, they'll kind of say, oh, well, <laughs> we all did it, you know. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. As long as the people who are doing the hiring are not their generation, but <laughs> right. the past generation, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Right. I, I surely wouldn't do it. And, and right. you know, there's that whole issue of should you be using Google to do a background check on somebody? You know, is that really fair? Do you show them what you've given them? You know, I mean, I'm of the mind that if you are going to do a background check on someone, you should always give them a copy of it. Well, that's, in essence, the one of the first two privacy laws that was passed in the United States was the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which was passed in 1970. And it covers the credit reporting system as well as the background reporting system. And the heart of it was that if you're going to do a credit report or a background report for employment, A, you must tell somebody you're going to do it in advance. And get their permission. And, and have them agree to it. Yes. Secondly, if you make an adverse decision, you have to give them a copy of what you received. They have a right under the law to challenge any item that they believe is not correct or incomplete. The law requires that the credit reporter go back to the source, the credit uh, agency like the bank or the insurance company that put the information in, and have it reinvestigated. And if it is not supported, they have to correct the report and send the corrected report to the employer or to the credit grantor. And even if they say it's still true, the law gives you a right to put a statement in the record and give it to the people that they've given the report to that gives your side of the dispute, such as I bought a refrigerator from Macy's and I demanded that it uh, open from right to left, and when they delivered it, it opened from left to right, and I can't get it open, and I told them to take it back. So there's a dispute over a product that's not a bad credit situation. So you have a right to put that in. Yeah. So those are all part of what was doable when computers first came in, and we had fixed databases. But, you know, i got to just tell you something, Alan, from all the victims that have talked to me, for example, victims of criminal identity theft who never knew it, the, the one problem with our law that says if you make an adverse decision based on a, a consumer report that you have to give them a copy and tell them why, the, the reality is in the real world, a company won't say we're not hiring you because of A, B, or C. They'll just say there was someone who was more qualified, so they won't tell you. Right. And and then I had a victim that I helped for many years. I mean, he literally was a victim from 1991 until I finally helped him in 2006, and he didn't know that he had a criminal record based on his identity thief. 
And so no one would tell him. Right. And, and then when we finally saw the source of it, we no one would even give us the source. We finally found the source when we did several background checks ourselves. It's not like the credit bureaus where you've got, you know, you can go to Equifax, TransUnion, Experian. There's so many background checkers that you don't have That's the right. central repository that you can say if you don't know where it is, Right. You don't have that right to a free background check that's from choice point that that is going to be the same that would be in Axiom or LexisNexis. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So that's One a of the real big problem. problems is that we are doing more and more backgrounding. We're doing it for people who teach in the public schools, who are camp counselors, people who work in senior citizen centers, people who drive trucks right. and go into any kind of... Uh, power facility and so if you and consider, and people who work in, with uh, access to sensitive information about you you know of course and, and credit the, card companies uh, banks whatever yeah yeah and and the problem there is that all in all of those situations there's tremendous pressure on the organization such as a camp or a hotel because they know that if they hire somebody and that person had a record of rape or violence they will be liable for big bucks because they'll be charged if, let's say, an employee uh, engages in a, an assault on a hotel guest or a rape of a hotel guest. Sure. And they cannot show that they did a background investigation and verified that there was no criminal record, or if there was a criminal record, it was not one which had violence associated with it. So the reality is that our litigative system puts a tremendous pressure on employers of all kinds to do background checks, but as you were saying, we don't have a single source for backgrounding. We have a lot of companies that yeah. collect a lot of information from public record sources and from uh, interviews and, and sometimes very soft information. It gets put into the file that is bought from these companies. And, and how to get it half corrected. the time it's not accurate, right? Yeah, I mean, there's tremendous problems. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a choice point or an axion, you're better uh, you off, can, yeah. You can be very, very uh, devoted to getting it as accurate as you can. But the problem is that most of their records come from public record sources, which means the mistake can sure. be in the state agency or it can be in the city record. Or the local the real court. Estate or, record, yeah, or the court. Or in the court record, exactly. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know... Defending your reputation in, in, in our present age is a very, very hard thing to do. That's why I said I think that the law should be that whenever someone does a background check of any kind and you authorize it, which you have to authorize, that they should give you a copy. They don't have to say anything, but they should give you a copy just so you see it and then you yeah. can deal with it yeah. as you wish rather than only if there's some adverse decision based on it because they're never going to admit it. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you, but the dilemma is, as you were so yourself pointing out, yeah. that the employer can say, gee, we didn't base it on the report. Right. It's that there were five <laughs> candidates and we interviewed them. And uh, this other one just made a tremendous impression on us, and we're right. terribly sorry. Exactly. How are you going to prove that, that that wasn't the basis of the decision? Exactly, exactly. I want to introduce you again because we are speaking with my hero, with the privacy guru of this generation, Dr. Alan F. Weston. He's professor of public law and government emeritus at Columbia University. He also is the author of several books, including Privacy and Freedom, 
data banks and free society, information technology and a new democracy. And he's also got a new, what's the name of the new book? (laughs) Did you think of a name yet? Well, uh, privacy in Western history from the Hebrews and the Greeks to the Internet age. Oh, it sounds great. (laughs) It sounds really great. Well, let's get back to this. When you when you did write Data Banks in a Free Society, which was published back in 1972, and that was based on a, a project for National Academy of Sciences. So what was that all about? Yeah, that was an important learning experience for me. When I did my first book, uh, Privacy and Freedom, and I would interview people who were in the computer field and in the new database world, uh, I didn't know much about it, and I would take sort of at face value a lot that were told to me about how systems would develop and what the problems would be. And the National Academy of Sciences had a computer science and engineering board, and they came to me and said, we think we really should do empirical research, get out in the field and see how computers are really being used and develop a methodology for analyzing what effect these technological applications have on privacy and confidentiality and data security, and so on. So what I did was, with an excellent staff and with the National Academy entree, we identified 55 organizations across 14 different fields of record-keeping about people, police departments, universities, uh, hospitals, uh, credit reporting, etc. And in each of those 14 fields, we went to the three or four organizations that were making the most advanced uses of computers. And essentially what we did through collecting all their information and going out and doing interviews with everybody and so forth, we said, what difference is it making by using computers to the way in which this organization collected and used personal information? And when we got all done and and did all this field work, what what we concluded was that computers had not yet made a major impact on the way these organizations were collecting and using information. And that was because the computers were still pretty complex, hard to use, expensive. You didn't have the the powerful software and you didn't have the uh, ability to put in information the way we now have. You know, I got to tell you, yeah, Alan, you know, back in the 80s, I was elected to a school board here and I remember they wanted to spend a fortune on computers, which we did because we said, well, that way we can, you know, contact the parents. We can keep it better in touch with them. We can do all these things with kids. Do you know that the computers that we bought took up, like, huge rooms? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in the old days, you had a uh, – when, when we went to these organizations in 1970, 71, 72 – you usually went to a whole floor, which yes. was the computer room. <laughs> yes, yes. And you had these enormous machines whirring and buzzing and so forth. And you I had think all that's these... why they weren't, you know, it was like that, because they were so big. Well, it was so costly and, and so clumsy. Yes. You know, nowadays you have on your laptop as much power as was in those rooms. That's what's so astonishing in yeah. terms of how the technology has developed. Right, right. Anyway, what I what I learned there was that you have to look very carefully at how the technology is being applied and ask what difference is it making in how much is collected, who gets to see it, how much control you have over uh, improper disclosure and so forth. And what it taught me was that, and I did this really for the next uh, period of my work, go out there and see what is really happening inside organizations, but do it with a clear knowledge about 
what the law was for that organization before, what it did before, what it didn't do. And then I did two more studies, one of computers' health records and another one for computers and personnel records. I did those in the 70s for the National Bureau of Standards. And we went to places like the uh, Kaiser Permanente. We went to the Los Angeles County Medical Center, uh, Martin Luther King Health Center, the Indian Health Service, and so forth. And by looking at what was actually happening in those organizations, I think we provided the right kind of model as to what you have to do in order to understand the change, understand what's positive and negative, and also understand what difference it makes to people's rights or benefits or opportunities that this new information system is developing. Well, how do you think that influenced HIPAA? Well, you know, health privacy has been a very, very difficult thing for the system, the American system, to deal with. Carter proposed a health privacy law, and it was defeated in Congress. And what, what did that include? Well, it was, it was sort of a pre-HIPAA. It, it said the uh, health information was going to be defined as privileged and private. Rules of confidentiality were in that draft legislation. Uh, people had a right to see what was in their medical record. One of the things that people today take for granted probably, is that, oh, if I wanted to see what's in my patient record, I can just go to the doctor or to the hospital and see it. Twenty years ago, 25 years ago, the medical profession wouldn't let you see what they wrote down. Right. You, you couldn't see what was in your patient records unless you brought a lawsuit for malpractice. So uh, the problem is that even with HIPAA, after the draft of HIPAA was uh, included in the larger bill about health information systems and portability, Congress couldn't write the statute. And they said, well, if we don't write it by such and such a time, we'll pass it over to the Department of Health and Human Services, and right. they will write the rule. Uh -oh. you know, yeah, that was the problem, yes. <laughs> and so Health and Human Services wrote the rule, and then in comes George W. Bush and the Bush administration, and they took away some of the most important parts of the privacy rule, so we didn't get the same privacy rule that came out of Congress during the Clinton years. We got a softened rule, and many people think that the privacy rule under HIPAA is a disclosure rule. Yes, it's not yes. A, it's not a privacy rule. Yeah, we've, we've had Deborah Peel, Dr. Deborah Peel, on yes. our show a couple times, and we've talked about that, how it is just a disclosure uh, rule. And, and truly, there's some problems that, that we see as, as one who deals with poor victims of identity theft and medical identity theft, even when you prove to the doctors in the hospitals that the record is wrong, they won't delete it. They just put in, they only want to put in some kind of notes about it. You right, know, they right. don't want to delete it. They just want to add to it, which obviously isn't very good for somebody who has a health record that does not even belong to them. Well, there are two things going on now that are going to bring health privacy right into the front gate in the next Congress and uh, across the next few years. One is the growth of electronic health record systems in hundreds of healthcare organizations right. and the development of personal health records by online companies such as Google and Microsoft right. and WebMD and so forth. And the other thing is the lack of security for health information. I just did a survey with Harris, which we're going to release soon which ask people, how aware are you, have you read or heard, about medical records or health information being stolen or lost? Uh, 
on the part of people who have health records like hospitals, insurers, employers, and so forth. Right. 69% of the public say they've heard about it, which is an astonishing figure in terms of anything in public affairs. Well, they, because they hear about all these security breaches, right? Well, but this is breaches from medical, medical information, not just general stuff about a laptop being stolen. This is where people heard that it was medical information health information. Then right. we said, well, you know, California you law. Yeah, California have you law. Personally, has... or a member of your yeah. family, had your health records or medical records stolen or lost. Right. And four percent of the public, which represents nine million people, wow, believe that their own medical records or health information were lost and stolen. Now, uh, that's whew. not the same as medical identity theft, which right. you know is properly defined as where somebody gets your medical information in order to get valuable medical services in your name. Here, the the harm is the violation and the feeling that you might have your sensitive information seen by the wrong people or or published and so on. But if you put those together, the electronic health record trend, personal health records, and the insecurity of the medical information, you've got a topic that really is going to be on the agenda of the next Congress. You know, that's what I was going to tell you, that California law just changed this year. so that, that Yeah, so now you we have... You have to report medical data breaches. Right. Not just financial stuff like your social security number, but if your right. sensitive medical information right. has been acquired by an unauthorized person, then that has to also, yeah. there has to be notification. Yes, the Identity Theft Resource Center, which collects statistics on this, Mm-hmm. I'm on their board. Yeah, reported that there were 50 episodes of medical data breaches in the first six months of 2008 alone. Yes. So we're dealing in something that, I mean, it's not the fault of the people who are the keepers of the medical record in the sense that they're putting it together in order to serve the patients, but the security has yes. been so bad, and they've just assumed that they can put laptops out without encrypting, or they can just dump records in the trash without uh, any kind of effort to destroy them. I mean, the level of security, although it's supposed to be high, and with a security duty under HIPAA, uh, but the actual record has been dismal. And if you think of, you're talking about electronic records, but even when you think about the offline records, when you go into these doctor's offices, there's like these cubby holes, right? That they have all these medical records, and who right. who cleans the offices at night, right? right. And what's right. in there besides your social security number right. and everything else in there? So you're talking about all sorts of you know right. availability and um, lack of security offline as well as online. It's it's yes. insane. Yes, in our survey, we asked that question. We said to people, "Where do you think the greater threat of lost or stolen?" health information is. Is it in computerized records, or is it in paper records, or are they both uh, vulnerable? And 47% of the public believe that computerized records pose a greater threat. About 25% think it's equal between paper records and computerized records. So the public's view is that there's greater danger in the computerized record, uh, which is interesting because what it reflects is the double-edged sword of computerized records. We know the benefits you get from them, but they are also insecure. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, our security breach law also gives gives the, the carrot and the stick. If you encrypt, 
that's your carrot, then you don't have to notify. So, right. again, it, it's going to have to be better security, at least with electronic records, for encryption. Yeah. But, you know, offline records, it's just going to be through the audit procedure, somebody coming in and doing a, an audit to say, what are you doing here? I mean, I've, I've done those kinds of audits where people are, they say, we have such secure electronic uh, encryption and all this stuff, and then I go and I see there's there's open drawers, you know, right, right, with right. information all over it. But you know, talking about the Harris Poll, I know when you for a long time you've been doing these Harris Poll things. Now you're doing this still, aren't you? With yes. how are you working with them now? Well, uh, looking back, I've done now about 65 national surveys on privacy, uh, citizen privacy, employee privacy consumer privacy and so on. I started in 1978 with Harris, then Lewis Harrison Associates, in what was the first national survey on privacy in depth. And over the years, what I've really specialized in is how do you judge uh, the, the public's attitudes on privacy? Are there, is there a segmentation that is helpful? And over the years, we've tested and verified that in a very rough sense, and it varies depending on the subject, but about 25% of the American public are intense in their privacy views, and they will reject benefits, and they will not want to see their information used because they fear that it is not secure, it will be misused, government will get to it, and so on. Then at the opposite end, about 15 or 20% are low in their privacy attitude, and I like to say that you know, give them 10 cents off and they'll give you their whole family genealogy. <laughs> Right. But in between, 55-60% are what I call the pragmatists, and they care about privacy, but they're ready to balance privacy against things that they consider to be valuable. And they go through a process that we verified with many surveys. It goes like this. One, why do you need my information? What are you going to do for me if I give it to you? Secondly, what safeguards and protections do you say you're going to apply so that I get the benefits without being harmed. And third and most important, do I trust you or do I believe that the law that binds you is going to be effectively enforced? If the pragmatists hear the right answers to those three, they'll give the information and be happy. Right. And one of the things that as a privacy expert I always try never to forget is that it's up to the individual to decide where the privacy boundary is set. And I shouldn't be allowed to impose my view on everybody else, and I don't want everybody else's view imposed on me. So the, the best kind of system we can have is one that gives the protection for the intense privacy people. They can opt out or they have to opt in so that they don't get pulled in. Right. And the people who have a low privacy threshold should be able to fill out the warranty card and put in for all the sweepstakes and do everything that makes them happy. And the balancers are the ones who really are at the center of gravity. They're the ones who tell business, if you want to get my uh, patronage, here's what you better do. I want you to tell me what you're going to do with my information. You're going to give me a choice as to how I have my information used. You give me the right to leave at any time I want and so on. And that's where, uh, with, let's say, the present Internet, we've got an issue which you know well, which is called behavioral marketing. Right, I was just going to ask you, because you did a survey, didn't you? Yes, we did. We asked, What's involved here uh, is, as you know, the, the ability of the Internet companies to monitor your transactions as you surf the Internet and you Google and so forth. 
and to put together all of the different places you go and things you do and uh, what you've bought and sold and so forth in order to serve you the advertisements and make you offers that are relevant to what you have done and therefore who you supposedly are. Now, for many people, that's seen as a great convenience, but we did a survey where we said uh, websites like Google and Yahoo and Microsoft can give you a free search engine or free email accounts because of the income they make from advertisers trying to reach you with relevant information. How comfortable are you, we asked, with that system? And 59% of the public said they were not comfortable. Uh, And 25% said not comfortable at all. So right away we know that we have a majority of the people who use the Internet who do not believe that behavioral marketing as it's presently done is acceptable. Now, is it was it transparent to them? Like, do people know that if they get a Hotmail account or a Gmail account, is it transparent to them what is really happening? Not at all. Okay. I think one of the things that's just happening is the Federal Trade Commission, which is the sort of consumer protection agency of the federal government in right. the privacy role, has been holding hearings and collecting information to try to say what do they need to do in order to inform people about the way in which ads are served to them or offers are made. So I think we're right in the middle of this. And after we got our first result, we then said, well, supposing that certain safeguards were put in in behavioral marketing, that you would explain to the user how the information was going to be collected and used, which is what you asked about, that you gave people choice as to the type of tailored content or advertising that would be shown to them, that you would put security measures in to safeguard the information. Most important, you'd promise not to share any of the user's personally identifiable information with any other company without the user's consent. And we said, if a website adopted all these policies, then how comfortable would you be? 55% of the public said then they would be comfortable, which is interesting because it's a 14 percentage point shift, but it's not really... uh, a shift that you'd expect when you'd put in all of those. And so I conclude that the 45% who still are not comfortable essentially are saying, uh, we don't trust the companies, and unless there's law that requires this, we just wouldn't think that those privacy protections would be enough. Interesting. Huh. So let's go back to, you were talking before about Web 2.0. Many privacy issues center on this rollout of Web 2.0, but I don't know what everybody really understands what you mean by net or Web 2.0. I think it's a a term that is intended to distinguish between what was once one-way communication uh, in net 1.0, in which you had the Internet as a vehicle for shopping and a vehicle for exchanging emails and doing uh, intellectual research and so forth, Web 2.0 is focused on the social networking, communication, video elements, which have transformed the Internet so that somebody can take their camera, take a shot of what they're doing in a room, put it up on YouTube, and it's there for people in Australia and New Zealand and China and London and so forth to to look at. So Net 2.0 empowers individuals to, one, create communities in a way that was never possible in the bulletin board 
uh, age of uh, Net 1.0, mm-hmm. and to communicate. The other thing is that the alongside Net 2.0 is the mobile revolution, which is enormous in terms of its impact on privacy, in which we haven't even really begun to experience. The fact that we've become a cell phone society around the world, that individuals have a device which can take camera pictures, uh, and, and interesting, the changes in the power relationships when individuals can photograph police beating people or other kinds of misconduct. Uh, it, it, it very interesting uh, shift in the power relationship that people can capture things that easily. Right. So I, I think Net 2.0 plus the mobile revolution tell us that it's a new world in terms of how personal information is collected and communicated and shared and captured and put under surveillance. So if you add to that the cameras in the streets, which are sweeping through societies of all kinds, and you have the cameras on the public streets, the cameras in the elevators, the cameras in the 7-Eleven stores, in the department stores, the anonymity that I described earlier as one of the four important states of privacy, um, we don't have too much of that left. No. So we don't have much time, Lloyd, as we have about two or three minutes, but I just want to ask you, so, you know, you've watched this grow, you, you know the history. Overall, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future of privacy in our society? Um, I have a balanced view that is partially pessimistic and partially optimistic. I think that the powers of the technology are so awesome that we can't, relax at any point or take for granted that privacy is going to prevail. On the other hand, I think our society and the Western political tradition is to value privacy because it's so essential to dignity and self-worth and uh, the management of ourselves that we will step forward politically, legally, and socially to assert privacy values and try to find the right mechanisms to support it. So. I think I'm a person who sees the threats as very significant, but also believes that we're creative people. Uh, we know how to support these values. And I think that on the whole, uh, I come out believing that privacy will prevail. Well, I like that optimistic attitude, and that's a great way for us to end. I want to thank you so much. I've been trying to get you on for so long. We are so happy that you finally joined us. You're wonderful, Dr. Ellen Weston. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We've just been listening to Dr. Ellen Weston, the guru of privacy, the hero of privacy, and the author of Privacy and Freedom and many other books and many treatises on privacy. Please join us every week, Wednesday evening from 5 to 6 p.m. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to our archived interviews, download podcasts, write us emails about what you want to know about privacy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lloyd. Good evening. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.